baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Doris Cordell has racked up quite a few firsts in her decade-spanning legal career. In 1982, she became the first black woman judge to serve on any court in Northern California. Then, six years later, after a successful election bid, she became the first black Superior Court judge in Santa Clara County's history. But these firsts are more than mere historical footnotes. As Cordell recounts in her newly released memoir, the background and life experience that she brought to the bench equipped her to spot failings in the criminal justice system that many others had left unaddressed. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and today on the program, we'll be speaking with Judge Cordell about that new memoir. It's titled Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. And there is an awful lot to be discussed, of course, so we're going to welcome her on right now. Uh, Welcome to the program, Judge Cordell. Thank you so much, Keith. I want to start off with a quote that comes up towards the end of the book. Uh, Paraphrasing a little bit here, you write, quote, With this book, I acknowledge my role in this legal system, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in so doing, I encourage all of us, legal and non-legal people alike, to call out its inequities. Uh, So I think that this quote hints at a a tension that plays a really central role throughout the book. Uh, On the one hand, you recognize the flaws in our legal system. But on the other hand, uh, you have for much of your career taken, uh, you know, a very important role within that system. So uh, curious, what are you hoping readers will take away from your reflections in this book that kind of outline your struggles with that tension? Well, thank you for talking to me about the book. And um, to answer your question, there are three things I really want readers to come away with after reading the book. And I I call them the three E's. Uh, I want people to be educated. People I have learned know very, don't know enough or know too little about our legal system, especially about our trial court judges um, throughout the country. Uh, There are, and just to give a comparison, Keith, there are nine U.S. Supreme Court justices who hear about 80 new cases a year. Uh, There are about 30,000 state court trial judges in a country of, what, 400 million people. So it's not a a significant number. And those state trial court judges uh, receive 80 million new cases a year. And those cases range from everything to criminal, civil, to family court, to adoptions, to name changes, to probate, to traffic court. 
just about everything we do in this country gets impacted by this handful of people, these trial court judges in black robes. And I want to educate people, that's the first E, about what these judges do and how they impact our lives. Um, and the second E is entertain. I mean, part of this book, it's not all heavy. Mm. Uh, there are some light things in the book, and uh, it's all part of the human um story that comes into our courtrooms. I see trial court judges as the people's court. We are the, where everything happens to the front lines. And then the third E is energize. I hope that after reading this book, judges on the bench, those retired and everyone who reads this book is energized to do something to make this legal system better. Because right now, in my view, this legal system is broken in many ways. And there are fixes to it, and which is why I have a chapter in the book called The Fix, where I talk about 10 things that are important to me and I think should be important to a lot of people about what we can do to make things better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to get into some of those fixes a little bit later on in the program. Starting off, I want to actually talk about another one of the themes that runs through your book, and uh, we hinted at it at the top of the program. Uh, that is the way in which cultural experience, racial background, both of those play an important role in how judicial decisions are made. You know, we like to think of the law as this purely mechanical thing that can determine itself, but it's really determined by people and uh, people have perspectives. And you actually saw, speaking of uh, somewhat whimsical anecdotes, you saw a very vivid example of this playing out on your very first day uh, before you were even a judge, but uh, first day getting experience doing the work of a judge. Right. So it, it is the case that uh, judges are where we must follow the law. But at the same time, there's this thing called judicial discretion, where we use our discretion within the law to decide, for example, what sentence to impose or how we make a decision as to who is telling the truth and who is not. And all of that is informed by who we are, our background, how we were raised. That's part of the whole judging business. So judges aren't computers. We aren't automatons that just push a button and this is this is the answer. Um, so it is the case that all of us, and I don't care what ethnic group you, to which you belong, if you're a judge on the bench, your, your decisions are gonna be influenced clearly by who you are. And that's, that's okay, as long as one is working within the confines of the law and doing what is lawful. So you reference what happened when I, it actually got me to thinking about maybe being a judge. Mm. No one in my family, when I grew up, um, no one in my family had ever gone into the legal profession. So I was the first to do that. And never was I thinking about becoming a judge. I just wanted to be a lawyer and a good lawyer. One day I got a phone call um, and it was from a judge. And it was a white male judge who later would become a colleague and a good friend who called and said, I'm trying to diversify a program we have here in Santa Clara County, where I live. And he said, would you agree to be on a list of what are called pro tem judges? Pro tem is from the Latin, and it literally means for the time. And a pro tem judge is a judge for a day, where if you've practiced law for a certain period of time, you get to be able to sit for a day and hear a small claims case. And small claims is people suing each other and no lawyers allowed. It's what Judge Judy presides over on TV. Mm. So I said, sure, put my name on the list because there were not people of color and there weren't very many women on the pro tem list. So I forgot about it. Then a few months later, I get a phone call saying your name has come up and it's just randomly given cases. Well, it turns out the case that I presided over um, involved two black women. And um, 
they were, they had an issue. One of them got their hair done uh, by the other and she refused to pay the hairdresser. And so the hairdresser's suing her to get paid. So what struck me is there, here we were, these three black women in small claims court. And I, I knew the subject very well. We're talking about black hair. I know the subject very well. So it was really after I heard that case and I write about that in the first part, the first chapter of the book called Bitten by the Judge Bug, when I, I drove home and I said, you know, I love doing that. I love being the one to settle the dispute and make the decision. And as a result of that, I ended up applying for a judgeship and a few years later, there I was and would be for the next 20 years. Yeah, and we're going to hear more about that in just a second. Real quick, just want to reintroduce you. For anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're speaking with Ladoris Cordell, the first African-American woman to serve as a judge in Northern California, speaking to her about her new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. And uh, so we're going to get into some of the meat of those arguments later on in the program. But I, I do think that it is a rare opportunity to hear from somebody who has served as a judge. Uh, you know, for so many of us that have only seen the courtroom dramas or stood at the other end of the courtroom, the, the judge is almost uh, an abstraction. You know, we don't we don't get to see what it's like to see the courtroom from that perspective. And so I want to bring in some of the anecdotes that you have in your book to just kind of humanize this profession a little bit. And maybe a good one to start with is the fact that there are actually different judge robes to choose from. And uh, this is something that uh, took a, a little bit of deciding when you were just uh, getting started out. Right. So I, you know, when you become a judge, then the next thing is you have to wear that uniform and the uniform is, is a robe and it has to be a black robe in California In others in some other states, at least one other state, it can be any color you want. Uh, but it's a black robe and there's rules. I didn't know this, that they have to cannot be above the knee and can't be below the ankle. And then I found out that there's, there's silk robes, there's polyester robes, and then there's robes for men, robes for women, um, all these things. And they're really, I got a brochure and you just pick the robe you want and then you order it, pay for it. And, and there you go. So um, that was just, just the beginning uh, getting into this whole new and different world. You, you never think about it, but of, of course there would be a place to buy judge robes. I mean, there just kind of kind of has to be. Uh, another thing that you point out that uh, I, I suppose is pretty obvious, but uh, you, you never really think about it, is the fact that uh, sometimes being a judge can get a little bit dull. And uh, one thing that plays a surprisingly large role uh, in, in, in your career, uh, you weren't slacking off, but, you know, it is something that you uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, made some good work with, is your doodling uh, actually turned into a bit of a fundraising scheme at some point. Right. Yeah. So not all judging is exciting. And um, if you've presided over your umpteenth drunk driving trial, we know exactly how it's going to proceed. And so I, I always drew when I was a kid, I would draw cartoons, sidewalk, chalk things. And so uh, when things were a little slow and I was a little bored, I was still listening, mind you, <laughs> but uh, half listening. Um, then I just started doodling and would draw anything, the pen on my bench. I even doodled my left thumb with dots, whatever. So <laughs> I ended up then doing some cartooning um, and legal cartoons where I would just uh, think of a legal term and then draw a cartoon and see if people could guess what it was. So um, it, I one cartoon where I had a picture of a judge and he was smiling, holding up a bottle of liquor. Mm. So what is the legal term? And it's take the fifth. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because you're holding a fifth and he's taking it. So um, I indeed, humor, everybody. Yeah, exactly. And very concrete. So <laughs> I ended up uh, drawing cartoons and said, you know, I, I people tended to like them. I'd show them to people. So I donate them to a nonprofit. One in particular was for um, a nonprofit that provided legal representation for kids. And uh, they put them in calendars and sold the calendars and were able to generate a good deal of money um, for the nonprofit. Just a a, a little hobby uh, taking on a life of its own, but uh, really illustrates (laughs) what exactly it is uh, that judges are up against sometimes and, uh, you know, what it takes to uh, be a good judge. I mean, you also suggest that some judges are really making this shooting from the hip some of the time. And that's uh, something that you tried to stay away from. Uh, you, you gave more detailed opinions, but that's uh, not always the case with some judges. Right. I mean, it's very easy to make a decision, just say uh, deny, granted, and that's it. Um, I felt it very important because I had practiced law to want to know why a judge ruled in a particular way. So I always made sure, and a lot of judges do this, so don't get me wrong. It's not that all judges are sitting around and just trying to take the easy way out. That's not the case at all. Um, But to take the time to explain to the litigants and to the lawyers exactly why it is that I ruled the, the way that I did. And also it's important to make a record because anything a trial judge does can be appealed and I could get reversed. So that's how the system should work so that trial judges are held accountable. And that kind of speaks to that variability in how different judges will approach their role, speaks to something else that was quite striking in your account, the fact just how little training you were given before you were thrown in. Uh, you, You even went so far as to say that your training as an actor that you got in college actually was an important part of easing into this role. But uh, other than that, you weren't given a whole lot. Right. And, and it isn't peculiar to me. This is what has just always just fascinated me. If you go to a professional, go to a doctor, go to a dentist, you know the person has gone to medical school, gone to dental school, and a doctor will do a residency and then train for a specific specialty. Judges, that doesn't happen. Basically, the general rule is practice law for, at least in California, for 10 years, and then you can apply to be a judge, or if the timing is right, you can seek to be elected. And it's You could, for example, be a lawyer who has practiced law by doing contracts, transactional works where you're very rarely, if ever, in a courtroom. But you decide, you know, I'm ready. I think I want to be a judge. So you either apply or you run for it and you could be a judge. And then here you are assigned. There's no there's no in-depth training at all. In fact, in California, now there is a judge's college, but it's only a couple of weeks where you kind of go in and get a sense about what you might be hearing. But if you're this lawyer I just described, uh, your first assignment could be family court, where you're going to decide who gets the kids. Well, what training do you have for that? You have none. Mm. And what if you're a judge who's gone through a divorce and had a terrible fight over your kids? How are you going to feel And how are you going to rule when cases come in front of you? So I was, it's just stunning when I tell people this, there is no judge school. There's no training. So again, you could just be thrown in and decide, okay, you're going to go to criminal court, your family court, or you're going to do probate um, without the training. And, And I don't think that's the way 
things should be handled. I think that people should, judges should have, be, have training. Uh, and if you are wanting to be a judge, I think there should be auditions. You should try out. You should go in and do what I did, which was be a pro tem judge for a day and be observed by those who would be engaged in making the appointments to see whether or not you have the temperament and the demeanor and the smarts to be able to sit in judgment of other people. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Speaking right now, once again, to former Santa Clara County Superior Court judge, uh, also former police auditor for the city of San Jose, Ladoris Cordell, speaking with her about her new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Uh, another important point that comes across in your book, talking about uh, the many ways that the individual character of a judge really matters, uh, you actually say that in a lot of ways, being a judge is uh, a test of your personal uh, moral character, uh, just because there are lots of pressures coming on you from many different angles throughout your career, lots of scrutiny of your rulings. And you feel that there are times where you pass that tests and uh, times where you felt that you, in retrospect, did not rise to the occasion the way that you would have liked to have seen. Um, uh, expand on that a little bit, what those pressures are and how it can test a judge. Sure. Uh, first of all, there's no point in writing a memoir unless you're going to be brutally honest. Mm. I, I don't, wouldn't want to waste any reader's time without putting out everything. So, um, yes, um, Judging requires a person um, to deal with a lot of pressure, pressure from the media, pressure from if you're dealing in a criminal case, from victims, from prosecutors, from defendants. And especially if you're a judge of color, uh, frequently uh, there are the defendants that come in to court look like me. They're either black or brown and there's pressures, expectations from various communities. Um, so you can't be a good judge if you want to be liked. You can't be a good judge if you can't make decisions. Um, and you can't be a judge, a good judge if you just want to delay and delay and delay. That's not going to happen. Um, so the comparison I can best give you is that there are trial court judges I just described, but there are also appellate courts that review what trial judges do. Those appellate judges, justices can take, well, they could take 90 days, six months, to make a decision. Trial judges get six minutes and sometimes 60 seconds mm. to make decisions. And so the pressure is on constantly and trial court judges live in a fishbowl and we should. We are paid by taxpayers, they pay our salaries and what we do should be transparent and we should be able to explain what we do. But does that mean we always do what's right and make the right decisions that we don't sometimes give into pressure? Of course we do. We're, we're human. And I certainly write about that in the book where, you know, I, I try to make the best decisions possible and some decisions upset me. They really do. But 
you know, judges, we take an oath. An oath is to uphold all the laws, even the laws we don't like. And even when jurors maybe come back with decisions with which we disagree, um, it is our role to just abide by the law and support it. And it's not always easy. And there's one decision in particular that really seems like haunted you towards the end of your career as a judge. Uh, It involved uh, a case that would invoke California's at the time three strikes law, uh, a law that uh, you uh, opposed and felt was unjust. uh, But you felt that at the time there was there was no way for you uh, legally to rule in any way that did not invoke this law and so uh, handed down a judgment that you felt was unjust. Wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that case and uh, w- what its impact was on you, because clearly it was something that uh, affected you quite a lot. I had always had a problem with California's three strikes law. Other states had three strikes law, but none were as harsh and as strict as California's, which said that the third strike could be a non-serious, non-violent crime. Uh, In fact, in California, the state prisons were filled with people who had been convicted and sentenced under the three strike law, 80% or more third strikes were either drug related or theft related. Uh, So most of the people were not there for for violent or serious crimes under the three strikes law. Um, So I had always had a problem with it. And then it really, I guess, was the case that said to me, it's time to move on. And that was the case of Leo Hill, who uh, pled guilty um, in the hope that I would somehow dismiss a third strike so that he was not, not be looking at 55 years to life. Um, And that is not to say that people charged with these strikes hadn't done bad things. That's not the issue. The issue is what is the appropriate punishment? So the three strikes laws are mandatory minimum sentences, meaning you have to give them and they paint all defendants with the same brush. We don't get to use our discretion and to look at their background, uh, what gave rise to their crimes, um, maybe just any, any factors at all. We can't do it under mandatory minimums with which is what the three strikes law is. So I ended up imposing a sentence on Leo Hill that I did not want to do, but I had taken an oath that I would uphold all of the laws, which is what I did. And thereafter, I just felt that I I didn't want to do this anymore. Um, And and, in large measure, because so many, a disproportionate number of black and brown defendants were coming into the Santa Clara County courts charged with three strikes. And I just... I was not happy about that and felt that um, if I couldn't do right or do better uh, while wearing the robe, then maybe it was time for me to try to change change the system um, out on the outside. And we're going to talk about some of those uh, efforts and the the broader reform push in just one second. One last time, uh, I do want to uh, reintroduce you and uh, for anybody just joining us, remind them that you are listening to KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we once again are speaking with former Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell, talking about her newly released memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. So... Talking about, you know, those efforts to affect change, and, and you do suggest that judges play a role in uh, reform efforts uh, within the criminal justice system. Uh, you actually write, I'm going to give another quote right now, quote, in the judicial arena, I believe that judges are either activists for justice or black-robed do-nothings, uh, end quote. So, you know, that, that, that term activist judge is kind of thrown around as an epithet, but you're suggesting that there really is uh, some role for activism on the bench? Absolutely. 
there are approximately 1,600 judges, that's appellate and trial court judges in California, a state of what, 40 million people. These are prized positions. And I truly believe that if you have the opportunity to be a judge, that you should use that, that position to make sure the system is doing as best it can, uh, which means judges should be activists in improving the system. So that the negative part, people have always said, well, activist judges are bad. No, activist judges are bad if they disregard precedent, if, if they don't abide by the law, if they don't abide by what the appellate courts say and just go rogue. That's one kind of an activist judge, which I do not ascribe to um, what I'm talking about, activism that respects precedent, but at the same time is always seeking ways to make the system better, to fix a broken legal system. And what are some of the ways that you tried to fix that broken legal system? I mean, you also write about in the book uh, some instances in which you ro- rose concerns about the way that people of color were treated within the system. And those concerns were, uh, at, at least at, uh, at one point, met with a room of uh, averted eyes and coughing and somewhat awkward shuffling, you know. So uh, I, I know that it wasn't always a, a straightforward process. So what ended up working? Where do you feel like you were able to make some progress? Sure. Um, All systems are resistant to change. It could be an education system, school systems, businesses, and the courts. They're resistant to change. So given that, there's always going to be pushback when something different comes along. And I write in the book at least two experiences. I write about where I pushed to make change and I got tremendous pushback. But always, I don't believe it was for naught. I think Mm. it was important to to step up and and try to push. Um, So Um, in talking about change, I think that every judge is in a position to make the system better. It's just a question of where you want to focus um, that interest. And I I just think it is shameful when judges don't spend their time also trying to push to make change. So in the book, I do talk about ways I think everyone can help make change. Um, And I'm not sure if you want me to spend any time talking about one effort that I tried I got tremendous pushback, but now it's the law in, in just about every state in the country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, in a chapter, I write about drunk driving, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's just a shame that there's so many drunk driving arrests in this country. And um, after I was hit by a drunk driver, I went back to court with a whole different view of how the courts were processing them. It was almost like a factory because there's so many drunk drivers uh, coming into court who were either getting convicted or pleading guilty. So I came up with an idea to try to prevent them from reoffending, which was to introduce the interlock, um, the ignition interlock breath device, which is basically plugged into the ignition of a car, it's the size of a cell phone, you breathe into it. And if you have any alcohol in your system, the car won't stop, won't start. So it basically prohibits this 2000 plus pound weapon from being driven by someone who was under the influence. Um, when I introduced this in my court and started sentencing defendants to use this device, uh, there was tremendous pushback from the judges on my court, from prosecutors. Uh, and in the book, I write about what happened. I mean, it really kind of pushed me to the edge where um, I thought, you know, this was all for naught. But It turned out not to be the case. And what I can say is that when you read this, you'll see how the saga ended. Um, But the the best thing about it for me is that 
in California, these ignition devices, interlock devices are now required. It is the law. And uh, it is the case that these devices are now utilized in by the courts in every state in the country. So it says it's a, it's a lesson that one person can change a system and a person in a black robe is uniquely, I think, positioned to try to make this kind of change. Yeah. And uh, so getting into the sorts of changes that I think uh, other people could get involved with as well, you write towards the end of your book, uh, 10 different recommendations that you have for uh, criminal justice reform. I don't have time to go through all of them, but uh, let's uh, talk about one that would probably be very well received by the majority of our listeners who have ever been called up uh, to jury duty. You talk about the need for more uh, juror compensation. And uh, obviously a lot of folks go through that day in the jury box and don't have a lot of monetary reward to show for it. Uh, Why, in your view, does that lead to less good jurying? Jury duty is a civic duty, and I think the juries are the key to keeping our legal system the best it can be. I have great faith in our jury system. Um, But for example, in California, if you get called for jury duty, you know, you're going to sit around a lot for a day or two, or maybe you get called in and you actually get selected. You're going to get $15 a day, $15 a day. Um, And for people who have jobs um, I, I just don't think it's fair. Uh, and, and there are some people maybe who think, well, no one should be compensated for doing their civic duty. I disagree. I think that when you're taking your time away, when you're, you're not out earning a living and your employer is not paying you every day that you're there and they're not required to, then I think, yes, there should be more compensation. In the appendix to the book, I put together um, a list of every state in the country and how much every state pays its jurors. Um, And I think people will be fascinated by it. Some states pay nothing. If you're a juror in federal court, you will get $50 a day. I still think that is not enough. And I have a proposal in the chapter, The Fix, um, that first of all, big companies, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, um, I believe they should be required to pay any of their employees who are on jury duty, their salary until such time they finish their jury duty. But for small companies that can't do it, and for um, say people who are retired, um, I think that there should be a state jury compensation fund where people can be paid at least um, an hourly wage per hour, an hourly wage uh, when they serve on jury duty. We need to elevate the status of jurors because I believe they're so important in our legal system. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I, here's another area that I really wanted to touch on with you, and that is the issue of plea deals, because this is just the one of the most remarkable aspects of the criminal justice system today is that it really, uh, the vast majority of the time, does not look the same way that it does on law and order. You know, um, we are not very often seeing these cases go in front of a jury. Instead, we're seeing them pleaded out uh, between the uh, defense attorneys and the the prosecution, the prosecutors, and And here again, you say judges have a role to play in reducing coercive plea bargains. Uh, What is that role? And uh, what should we know about coercive plea bargains? Right. In the chapter called The Art of the Plea Deal, I state that 98% of criminal cases, that's federal and state, never go to trial. They are settled by plea deals. And some of them, that's fine. Some people are guilty of what they're charged and they, they're allowed to plead and that avoids having a trial and dragging victims into court. But there are also substantial number of people who plead guilty who 
say they are not guilty. And the reason they plead is because they don't just want to keep sitting in jail um, until such time as they can have their trial or they can't afford the bail that's been posted. So the U.S. Supreme Court has said it's fine. Uh, it's fine for people to plead guilty, even though they say they're not guilty. And it's come to be known as Alford pleas, A-L-F-O-R-D, Alford pleas, uh, which the Supreme Court says is just fine. Um, so there are people who basically are coerced because the system is just not working the way it should into pleading guilty when in fact they are not. So in the fix, I talk about um, plea bargaining. Um, I also talk about how they should not be used as coercive tools in our system that the Sixth Amendment guarantees everyone the right to stand trial and the right to a jury trial. Um, it turns out, however, we don't have enough judges, we don't have enough prosecutors, we don't have enough public defenders to be able to get everybody who's charged to trial, which is why we have plea bargains that drive the system. That's not what was contemplated and it's certainly not in the Sixth Amendment. So we need to get a handle on this and not have plea bargains drive our system, which is exactly what the with the um, with the legal system, the criminal legal system, that's how it works right now. Uh, so we need to first of all be educated, understand what it is, and then we need to look at how we need to change it so it's not coercive and everyone who wants to have a trial be allowed to stand trial without being penalized by judges who are ticked off because the person didn't take a plea bargain. That's not how the system should work, but it tends to work that way now. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a massive problem and uh, very good that we're shedding a little bit of light on it. Uh, to, to close out, uh, just curious for your reflections. You know, it's we're talking about you ascended to the bench in uh, 1982. Here we are uh, whew, four, four decades later. And uh, curious what you feel like has changed at, at this point. Uh, has... Has the judiciary in California become more diverse? Have you seen some of those campaigns that you uh, started off uh, make more traction? How good should we be feeling about the direction of uh, the criminal justice system in California at this moment? Uh, we should feel good and we should all feel that we can do better. The, the, the judiciary doesn't look anything like it looked when I started judging. So now it is not an issue to see women to see people of color, to see those who are out gay, who are trans, um, everyone that fits the demo various demographics of California can be seen on our benches. So I, we've made great progress and we will continue to make great progress with that with the, the governor that we have now. So that being said, there are so many things that still need to be done to make the system better, to fix the things that are broken. And I believe they can be fixed. Um, but the, the one thing I want to leave with, with folks is that our legal system is premised on the best principles possible. Um, principles such as due process, the right to a jury trial, the right against self-incrimination. These principles were put together by white men who did not contemplate uh, them applying to women, to poor white people, or to people of color. So the problem, again, with these wonderful principles is in its implementation. We have to do things as best we can to see that these principles are implemented for all. That means we address racism, we address conscious and unconscious bias, we address sexism, homophobia, all of that 
It's there, it's present, we shouldn't deny it, but we have the principles on which to work. It's the job of all of us to make sure that that implementation is done so that we all stand equally in our courts. Yeah, uh, a grand vision and uh, a lot of unfinished work from the old Declaration of Independence, but uh, a lot of people taking up that call. Uh, we have been speaking with one of them. She, once again, is LaDoris Cordell, the first African-American woman to serve as a judge in Northern California. Been speaking to her about her new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. George Cordell, thank you so much. Thank you, Keith. It's been wonderful talking to you. And you as well. Uh, and thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 